and we're blaming marriage for all of our problems. When the reality is we should be looking at ourselves and saying, where can I learn how to be a human being that practices skills and tools that forge healthy connections in all of my human experience and not just in my romantic pairings. And so I think that's what's so wonderful about this line of work is it it's it makes the human condition more connected as a whole and not just in romantic partnership. This is episode number 491 with Lauren Reitzema and Janine McKenzie, Relationship Skills for Lasting Connections. Hi, everybody. I'm Sandy Weiner, and welcome back to Last First Date Radio, where we believe it is never too late to go on your last first date. And if you want some support on your journey to lasting love, I wrote a book, and it's called Becoming a Woman of Value, How to Thrive in Life and Love. It's filled with 30 chapters with tips and stories and exercises, all designed to help you step more fully into your value. And you can find it on Amazon for Kindle or paperback. This week's tip from the book is step 21. Your past doesn't limit you. We often think that our past is just the way it is. You know, I was born this way, or I have these kinds of parents, or like in this episode, we're going to be talking about even if you come from a divorced family and you don't have relationship skills, it doesn't limit your future and your present. And so my challenge to you today is to look at where you might be having a limiting belief about your past and really question the validity of that belief and take one step forward to proving that this is not the truth for your present and your future. And before I bring on our guests, I want to just give a quick shout out to our Facebook group. It's called Your Last First Date. And we have about 3,500 women who are all interested in positive growth on their journey to their last first date. So if that's something of interest to you and you're a woman over 40, please join us at your last first date. And now for my guests, Lauren Reitzma's interest in relationship skills began when her parents divorced after almost 20 years. She wanted to understand better patterns for her future. And so she got a bachelor's degree in communications from TCU. She's the author of In Their Shoes, which is a book dedicated to helping parents better understand and connect with children of divorce. She's been a speaker for over 14 years. She teaches a variety of relationship skills to youth and adults and corporate teams. And she and her husband, Josh, and their three kids are avid skiers, outdoor enthusiasts, and Broncos fans, and they live in Colorado. Lauren's mom, Janine McKenzie, is an RN and former first lieutenant in the USAF Nurse Corps. She founded the Center for Relationship Education, which has certified more than 15,000 educators. She participates in national public health standards policy through many board memberships. She and Lauren are the co-authors of the new book, Relationship Essentials, Skills to Feel Heard, Fight Fair, and set boundaries in all areas of life. Welcome to the show, Lauren and Janine. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So um, I I just love the focus of your work and pretty impressive background that both of you have. The book um, Relationship Essentials has a lot of tools and um, 
what are some of the, the main tools in the book and how can these tools help us to reconnect where we're all just trying to become more connected post-pandemic? Such a good question. It's a hard question because the whole book is written around a family of tools, uh, that, a grouping, if you will. So it's hard to pick just one, uh, but I feel like readers that have reached out to us have shared some of their favorites. So maybe we'll just highlight some of the favorites that have come up with our readers that have engaged us and said, I really liked this one. So the two that continually continually come to my attention and mom, maybe you can add one or two from your experience as well are the scissors, which we talk about cutting cutting it out with uh, blame shifting and owning your mistakes. I think we live in a society that really has a hard time saying I was wrong and I messed up. And so I think ownership is a huge one. And we like the scissors analogy because it literally says cut it out. And the second one that I think is just really relevant for people in today's world with post-COVID pandemic is the uh, spirit level or the leveling tool to find value and anchor even polarizing viewpoints in in the middle so that you can balance the human experience of knowing that we still have a society that can agree to disagree and that can validate respect over rightness. And I I actually absolutely agree, Lauren. And the thing that um, I really love is uh, communication tools. First of all, whoever teaches us how to have relationships Really, Nobody. we learn. We learn how to drive. We learn how to do math. We learn how to. We, you know, we even train our kids. To, you know, in regard to potty training. We, but when it comes to relationships, which is so natural, it would seem there's really only in the last thirty or so years has been a body of literature about what makes relationships work and what makes relationships fail. And when I discovered that body of literature, I was blown away by the science behind it, by the actual intentionality of studying this so that we can have uh, impart skills to have healthier relationships in every, no matter what kind of relationship it is. And so one of my favorites in the book is the power of of thinking best of of the person that you're having a relationship with, always having the best intentions, making sure that you have an attitude of gratitude around this relationship and trying to find the positive things rather than always picking at the negative. And um, in in our work, we talk about, you know, you say say an off the cuff remark that might hurt somebody's heart. And according to the data, it takes 10 compliments or 10 positive words to heal that little off the cuff remark that we do in anger, when we're tired, when we're rushed, you know, when we don't have enough time. And if we could just just know, I I just need to be much more intentional about my words. That's that's a huge skill. Huge. I, I just spent two weeks with my youngest daughter in California and we were fighting nonstop. We were spending 10 hours at a time in the car. And one of the, I was trying to really get to the point of how can we repair? Because we've, we've locked horns a lot. We have different values. We value different ways of, 
of being in the world. And I know that we can do better. And one of the things I noticed was the lack of gratitude and I, and the lack of positivity. And I said, you know, all I hear is what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong. And if you could just sprinkle in some more positivity, that would go a long way to all, you know, healing this relationship and all the negatives. And she was like, I don't want to be fake and say things that are good when they're not. And I said, you know, if you focus on the good, you'll be able to find the good. It's not, I'm not asking you to be fake. So what would you say to someone like my daughter who was really struggling to find the positivity without feeling like she was putting on an act? The tool of gratitude is actually represented in a battery, a physical battery image, because everybody needs batteries to power their power tools. And so when we're doing a tools metaphor-based publication, we really wanted to find an illustration that made sense. And the fun thing about a battery is it does have a positive and a negative charge. And I think sometimes we get overworked in our positive thinking advice column because everybody just says, focus on the positive, focus on the positive. And if you're authentically struggling with some of the negative and you can't change that up, it's the balance, the power that gratitude has both positive ends and the, or excuse me, a battery has both positive ends and it has a negative charge. And it's how we respond to that negativity that solicits that gracious and, and gratitude response. So I would say to be able to start by giving people emotional safety and freedom to acknowledge pain or to say, this isn't fun. I do empathize a little bit with that fake, uh, that combat against fake because you can't just be positive if you're hurting, but if you give emotional safety to feel the negative energy and then fuel that with a supercharger gratitude, that's where we see life change happen. I agree with Lauren. I think that, you know, vulnerability uh, is, you know, o- opening your heart to uh, some of the things that you're hurting about or feeling, but then especially with a mom, I, you know, my mom's 90. And sometimes she's hard to be with, you know, because she has, she's so opinionated. <laughs> she's even at 90, every, everybody has a right to her opinion, right? And, and she'll, she'll try to lead me and I'm in my sixties. Come on, mom, I'm a, I'm a grown woman. But so, so humor, humor creates that positivity is, is, is having a sense of humor and also the honoring of the position. In other words, my mom is 90. She's a woman of great worth and value. She, it, no matter what she says, no matter how, what her attitude is, she's my mom. And she, I, just in her position, I'm going to honor her. In other, in other words, it's not being fake. It's being honoring, right? And so I think that, um, but you have to be rested you know, I think you have to be rested. You have to be well-fed. You have to be um, intentional. You have to be, slow it down. So slow down your activities so that you can be honoring. It, it takes a lot of work to do this, but I can tell you the benefits of healthy connections are unbelievable in, in, regard, in regard to your health. If you look at the literature around health, wellness, human flourishing, thriving, all of well-being, all of those things, it all is uh, rooted in healthy relationships. 
Absolutely. And I think you and I have the same mother. <laughs> my mother just turned 90 and I'm in my 60s. And it's um, and she gives a lot of unsolicited advice. And knowing how to handle that is definitely a skill. And I agree. I think that what I like about what you're sharing is that there are symbols and it's easy to picture a lot of these things. I think that people see this as this kind of nebulous thing. How do we heal relationships? We've been stuck in them for a long time. You have to change, you have to change and not taking responsibility for yourself. And um, so the first thing with the scissors is no blame, own your mistakes. Um, and that's a lot of the repair work that my daughter and I actually did. And we sat down and um, we talked about um, not only the positive, the negativity and the positivity, but also that I said to her, what can I do differently? You know, and, and so I wanted to know like, what was her key issue? And she said she didn't feel heard. And so I asked her how she would feel heard when I speak to her, what can I do differently about that? And so it's, it's really taking it and breaking it down, which I don't think we've ever done to that degree. We just got locked into this, you know, power struggle, which I think is common. And she's also the, the daughter of divorce. And so I'm wondering in your own relationship, um, Lauren, how old were you when your parents got divorced? The divorce was finalized, I believe my late in my sophomore year, early in my junior year of high school. So 16, 17, kind of getting the car keys of independence and then being directed by a choice that I had no voice in. So it was a challenging time to try and assert my own grief and power while also balancing the independence and the security that I had in my own autonomy at that time. And I think the biggest struggle relationally for me in that was identity-based and not necessarily connection-based because at 16 or 17, when you're trying to get your wings and identify where you fit in your family and your community and your social groups and what school you're going to go to if you pursue higher education, a lot of that identity is just uprooted almost overnight when you're trying to find your new normal and very new situations with new people around you. So that, that was my experience being a teenager. And I know for every age group in my work and in consultation with a lot of children of divorce, that every age group has a little bit of a different transition into their grieving and coping and healing and health path, but every child does need to go through it, no matter how young or old that they are at the time. Yeah. And it, it, it really varies with how the parents are handling the divorce as well. Um, exactly. Yeah. So that's, that's a tough time, teenage, teenage years. I remember those years well. And what about for you, Janine? How, how did the divorce affect you and your relationship with your daughter? And I don't know if you have other children. I have four children, okay. uh, obviously all grown. Um, what, what it did was catapult me into the why behind the divorce. I know that divorce is the new normal. I mean, it just seems like, you know, it's like my first house, my first wife kind of thing. It's, it's, too, it's too normalized. And what, how Lauren expresses herself in regard to the challenges is so brilliant. And she also wrote another book uh, about 
divorce and remarriage from a child's point of view uh, because she's so articulate and so in touch with her feelings. But what this did for me was catapult me into this relationship space. I wanted to know why, what happened? What happened? Because we had a low conflict marriage. We, I mean, we, we, we didn't fight about a lot of things. We were do. if you look at a Venn diagram, you know, we had very little overlap in the middle. We were just kind of orbiting, two people orbiting in the same orbit. And um, the closeness and the, you know, I mean, no marriage is hearts and rainbows and unicorns and none of that. I mean, but but it, I thought it was an okay marriage. And, and I thought it was, you know, we were doing our thing and I was raising the kids and he was, you know, doing his thing. And it was shocking to me how it, it threw a grenade into all of these people's lives. It was a grenade launch. And um, what, what happened to me was I went into this why place. What happened? How could I help others not face divorce? Uh, even though my life is good and I'm remarried and all that kind of stuff, I still have a lot of pain watching my children be children of divorce, no matter how old they are. And especially now here come the holidays and right. And, you know, or any kind of baby being born, any kind of those milestone life milestones, I see the pain on their faces because of the drama and the, because it's not supposed to be this way. It's really not intended to be this way. We go down the aisle with this strategy of hope and li lifelong love and building a life together. And when it doesn't happen, it, it cannot be normalized. And that's what's happening in our culture. And like 46% of families in this country are blended. Think of all the drama that's happening during, you know, that happens with that. So that's what happened to me. I went into a tailspin emotionally, of course. Fortunately, I had counseling. Fortunately, I had a, a healthy community supporting me, which a lot of people don't have, by the way, which we need to build those social supports. But I went into, this is where, this is where I'm going to find out what happened. And that's why we started the Center for Relationship Education. That's why we teach the skills. That's why this is such an important practice for mental health, for physical health, for social and emotional well-being. And I think I've watched a generation fear marriage as the issue, the driving factor of conflict and dissolution can be avoided if you just avoid commitment. And that's actually not true. I always say people in a marriage relationship are flawed. It's not marriage as a commitment that is flawed. And I think people create marriage based on their patterns. And you can have a toxic commitment relationship or a toxic hanging out and you know cohabitating relationship just because you avoid marriage doesn't mean that you avoid the hurt and i think we're worried in a generation we're casting blame if you will with the scissors on the wrong thing we're blaming marriage for all of our problems when the reality is we should be looking at ourselves and saying where can i learn how to be a human being that practices skills and tools that forge healthy connections in all of my human experience and not just in my romantic pairings. And so I think that's what's so wonderful about this line of work is it it's it makes the human condition more connected as a whole and not just in romantic partnership. I so agree. And and this is similar story catapulted my career. I was an artist before I became a, a coach and 
started out in a completely different, with a different focus on helping people in midlife with transitions. And I kind of fell into it when I realized, first of all, I was doing all the research, like how the why, how could I, how did I end up here? you know, and how can I do better? And then I was helping friends and they were like, you're really good at this. Like you should do this. So it's, it's an ongoing study. And the good thing is also my children are benefiting and I can see that they understand more about healthy communication and boundaries. And, um, you know, recently I asked my oldest daughter, what was the hardest part of the the divorce was for her. And she said the divorce wasn't hard, the marriage was. And she was the one who picked up on all the the flaws in the marriage. And anytime we'd have any argument, she would beg me not to get divorced from the time she was eight years old. We didn't have a lot of heavy conflict, like out and out battles, but she was so sensitive that she picked up on it. And she was telling me not to get divorced way before I thought about getting divorced. So it's just interesting how all the children experience it differently. And I know for myself, I wanted my children to have a different legacy than what I had inherited from my family. My parents were divorced and my, you know, and and there's a lot of dysfunction in, in people in general don't know how to do relationships. So these skills are so essential, as you say. Um, let's talk about boundaries because that's another one of my favorite topics. And um, I know that you both say that setting boundaries is kind, which I agree with. And I'd love you to say a bit more about boundary setting and how we can do it with kindness. Because I think a lot of people think it's just harsh. It's a wall, you know, don't set boundaries. People won't like you, <laughs> you know, all the, all the misconceptions. So, yeah. Well, boundaries create safety and they create limits and our brains are recognized. They, they recognize those limits and you feel safe when you know where the guardrails are. So think of in the book, we write about a deck project growing up in the foothills of Evergreen, Colorado, and my parents were remodeling the deck and had a party on the 4th of July that they were delayed on most contracting processes get delayed and nobody would set foot on the deck without the guardrails, even though there was lots of square footage of safe boards nailed down. And I think that's the, we expect freedom with the guardrails removed. We say, well, if you set a boundary, you're being harsh. Actually, if you set a boundary, you're marking where those lines are and inviting people that you know and love into a space of safety. When you don't set the boundaries, there's a lot of insecurity. There's a lot of doubt. There's a lot of worry. And those aren't foundationally safe emotions to navigate relational wellness around. And so I found that just being able to say, just like you want to drive on a road, especially in the Rocky Mountains that has a guardrail on it during a snowstorm, you want to set those guardrails in your relationships so that you have more margin to, to feel safe and to feel known. And I think it's hard to start setting healthy boundaries when you haven't really had a model, but the first time that you say, Hey, you know what? I only have until 12 o'clock for this coffee, but I really want to be all in while I'm, while I'm here with you. And so can we just turn the phones off and, and be, be in this together with some FaceTime because when noon hits and I have to skedaddle, I want you to know that I was all here 
that boundary actually creates more margin to connect with that person versus constantly looking at your watch, never declaring when you have to go and having that person worry if you're distracted because you're, you're, you don't want to be late to your next venue. So even something as simple as a time constraint can help free people to say, okay, I know what you need and now I'm going to help meet it. Yeah. And I, I would absolutely agree. I have a different, you know, when I was dating uh, again, which is unnatural to be sort of dating at 40 when you've been married for 20 years, it was a very, um, it was very nerve wracking, very nerve wracking. And, um, and what I did, because I read so many books during that time was uh, really say, what is it that I really want? What I, I am busy. I have a lot of things I want to do. And I have boundaries around my time, of course, but I also want to make a list of things that I will accept and things, things that are deal breakers. And one of the deals breakers for me is vulgarity, you know, and, um, and um, a couple of the guys that I dated were, you know, foul mouthed and they thought they were being so funny. And the more they drank, the, the worse it got. And I just said, you know, I just don't do vulgar. I just don't do vulgar. I'm not a prude or anything. I just, I'm really sensitive to that. I'm really sensitive to, you know, uh, jokes about other people, you know, sarcasm. I'm really sensitive to sarcasm. And I set a really strong boundary early on in the dating relationship. And the, the, the people that honored those, I continued to date and the people that it was a great way to weed out the losers, (laughs) you know, because it wasn't what the boundary was about is about about whether or not you were willing to honor the boundary. Right. And boundaries could be as simple as this. I'll give you an example with my 90 year old mom. Okay, you'll appreciate this, Sandy, is, you know, she gets up in the morning and she thinks about food. You know, what are we going to have for breakfast? What are we going to have for lunch? What are we going to have for dinner? And when she comes, she's loves, she's a wonderful cook. And then we all sit down to her wonderful meal. And we're all saying, oh my gosh, we are so stuffed. It was so wonderful. Mom, it was so great. Would you like some more? And we say no. And what does she do? She puts it on our plate. That's even a boundary breaker. Now she's 90. I'm not going to say, mom, you broke a boundary, right? I'm not, gonna, I'm not she's not going to change at 90. But if somebody else that was younger than she, okay, or uh, I would say, excuse me, did, did you not hear my no? And that's the generational cycle I'm trying to break because my 60 year old mother still does similar patterns in her Italian heritage. And I'm trying to remember, remember, we wrote a book together about this. Do not break my food boundary. I am not hungry. I can self-regulate. Stop being so Italian. That's just when I throw down the gun. But, but it, it could be as simple as that generational cycle of listening to somebody's no, listening yeah. and honoring. Yeah. So I actually have set boundaries with my 90 year old mother and she has started to change. I never did it for her to change, but a couple of them were, she would be on the phone with me and she would take another call and put me on hold. And so I told her, if you do that again, I will hang up because I don't, I'm, I'm talking to you and I, you're important to me. And so if you're going to put me on hold, I'm going to hang up. You're not prioritizing our conversation. I did it a few times and she was like, okay, I'm going to let it go to voicemail. And I also did it with unsolicited advice. Um, I did it 
That's a hard one to break, but I do say, you know what? Thank you. I appreciate your trying to contribute and I'm not looking for that right now. Um, so I do it gently. We did it with time with her being late all the time for meals when we'd have family gatherings. And I, we finally said, we're going to start the meal if you're more than 15 minutes late. She has nothing going on. She can get in the car. She, she still drives. She knows how to do it. And she started to come more on time. So it's, you know, it may or may not work. And I think it's important to remember that we set boundaries for ourselves and, and for the relationship, but not to change somebody, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it's a bonus if they listen, but we also, it's, it's a way to weed people out. And I think in the dating world, like you said, I highly recommend that people know what they need and want and set boundaries around that because you don't want to wait six months to set those boundaries and put up with things that you absolutely cannot tolerate, like vulgarity or sarcasm, joking at somebody else's expense. Those are all really unkind, disrespectful traits in a person that will come out in other ways. So I totally get it. And I, I'm with you on that. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Music Unlimited. You can listen to over 70 million songs and thousands of playlists and stations. Plus, you can now stream your favorite podcasts like Last First Date Radio. You can listen to any song, anytime, anywhere, on any of your devices, your smartphone, your tablet, your PC or Mac, Fire TV, and any Alexa-enabled devices like the Amazon Echo. Get Amazon Music Unlimited for free for 30 days just head on over to getamazonmusic.com forward slash last first date to learn more and claim this offer. Everything is an actual physical tool in the chapters of the book, as you saw, and the boundaries is represented by a measuring tape. And I had this idea to actually come up with an acronym that would make anybody uh, remember these boundary setting tools really, really easily. And so if you think of a measuring tape, T-A-P-E, you have time limits for the T, auditory limits, which is that vulgarity. What, what am I willing to take in and listen to? Physical limits, which are physical boundaries on touch and being close, close to people that are violating your personal boundary space. And then emotional boundaries and emotional limits. What are you willing to put up with as far as emotional safety? So time, auditory, physical, and emotional, a really good four, four checkpoint system for measuring your limits before they happen, because any good architect will tell you measure twice and cut once. Are you guys in the construction business? <laughs> All of the tools well, are- let me just say that. Let me just say something about that, because Lauren is so brilliant in her the way she puts things together. And one of the things that every time she speaks to a crowd, uh, relationship education, it, you wouldn't think that men would really love this, but because she puts it into the sports uh, arena, she puts it into, you know, tool time, Tim, home improvement, you know, that whole ma- male, when you talk about tools and power tools, men gravitate to these and they remember them. And it takes two, it takes both genders, all genders, to, 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 to gravitate to these tools. And that's why these, these metaphor, the metaphors 
and the acrostics that Lauren has put together is, is so universal in how we remember to do this. Yeah. No, it's brilliant. I mean, it's we need some way to remember things. And a lot of these things are abstract to people unless you give it a concrete way to remember and also scripts, you know, like you just shared some scripts for how to set a boundary. I think when people don't hear scripts, they they think that a boundary is something completely different, you know, and no is a boundary and it's a sentence. <laughs> But a lot of times it's, it's no, I can't do that, but I can do this. You know, it's like, I, I, can, I can't meet you for three hours, but I can meet you for one. I can't meet you at five. I can meet you at two. That's a boundary, but people don't realize it. Then they do it. And then they're mad that the person took up their time. And it's like, you're an active participant in your life. And we have to take back our responsibility in that. And boundaries also have another person involved. We talked a lot about setting the boundary, but we have to honor other people's boundaries. And if somebody says to me, Hey, I have a hard stop at two 30. And I say, okay. And I continue to gab away until two 40 and make them out to be the disrespectful one for getting up and leaving. That's on me. So honoring people's boundaries is just as important in setting them. And I think we need to stop really talking down to or condescending those that have strict boundaries because they're not unkind people. As a matter of fact, they have probably the most uh, clear roadmap for us to follow to really understand how to connect with that person in a healthy way. And I wish that all of us would have the freedom to say setting boundaries is kind and honoring boundaries is respectful. And man, just doing those two things alone would transform our society. Yep, totally. I, I have a close friend who had so many boundaries that were so clear. And one of them was she meditated every time we got together. She had meditated every day at a certain time. And she'd say, okay, I need to be somewhere where I can just close my eyes at this time so I can meditate. I totally respect that. I respected her respect for time. She was a person who was absolutely on time and I knew she would show up, you know, and it's like, we can depend on people who say what they mean and mean what they say and are clear about their boundaries. And it's true for parenting too. I think so many parents are so afraid to set boundaries. That's a whole other discussion, but I, I know that when I got divorced, I was setting boundaries much more than my ex-husband was. And my kid, one of my kids in the beginning was really upset with me and taking everything out on me, but ended up moving in with me full-time because of my boundaries. And she said, I feel safe here. And so that's such an important message for everybody to really take away that boundaries make us feel safe. And I, can I piggyback on that when you talk yeah. about parenting? Because we have a story, this is a story in the book and it's, it. I, I love this story because it is so indicative of parenting and how safe you make your children feel when they know the boundary and they know your expectation. And the story was that I had a nurse friend of mine who I hadn't seen in a long time. She lived way far, you know, in, in the Denver proper area. I lived in the mountains and she said, come over to my house for lunch and bring the kids. And I said, bring the kids? You know, her house was filled with lowly crystal and all these wonderful breakable things <laughs> and I said you really want me to because I haven't seen your children 
either in a long time. I'd like to have them come. And here they were toddler, you know, they were like, you know, four, five and six. And I thought, oh my gosh. Okay, so I prepared the way and I even got a physical boundary. I got each, I bought each of the kids a small three by three blanket or maybe it was four by four hours. And they, I got them a, a, an activity bag and I got them all, all these things. And I, you know, and I brought a timer with me. And I said, when we go to, to, to Mrs. So-and-so's house, we're going to, you are going to come in. I'm going to lay down your, your blanket and you're going to stay on your blanket. And I separated all three and you're going to play with your crafts. We're going to get, you know, and I fed them beforehand. So she didn't have to worry about feeding them. And th these kids for an hour, for one hour, they were on their blanket. They didn't fight at all because they were separated by that boundary. Okay. And they, she said to me, did you drug these children? What is the deal with these? I said, no, I set the boundaries all the way down the hill to your house. I was saying, listen, did you hear what I said? Repeat back to me what's going to happen. And if, if you did get off your blanket, there's going to be consequences. What are the consequences? If you do what you're asked to do, we're going to go to Dairy Queen or Wendy's and get us a Frosty or whatever, a McDonald's. And they, they were so well behaved, not because they're always so well behaved, but this particular time they had very clear instructions. A great story. Yeah, kids do well with clarity. And when the consequences do follow, which I grew up in a home where there were a lot of threats and not no follow through. And so I used to beg my parents, like, please follow through. Tell me what you mean, mean what you say. And, you know, and so I had to learn to become my own guide early on. I was telling my, my mother what to do, like, you know, and that's an unsafe feeling for a kid. And so giving them those guardrails early on and then following through and then rewarding them. I mean, I would go to Dairy Queen if you were my mom, that would be a good incentive for me. <laughs> right. I love that. Um, so let's talk about conflict and um, every relationship has differences. We talked a little bit about my daughter and me and how we're negotiating differences. She's actually coming home on Friday and I have already started to set up how that's going to look and what's going to happen so that we can be prepared for expectations, which often is totally out of whack. And um, so what's the best way to handle conflict when it comes up, especially if people really have very different ways of dealing with conflict? So one of the ways to approach conflict is to simply approach it with a new lens, to look at it from kind of a reframing perspective where instead of seeing an absence of conflict as a signal of health, you wanna see what conflict is indicating is happening in the relationship and responding to that with graciousness and a little bit of patience. And that's where the discipline comes in. Because I think the myth in relational wellness is that if we have conflicts, we have an unhealthy relationship. And that's actually not true at all because we talk about in the book, we fight because we care. We don't fight about things that we don't care about. If you do, you probably need another book and it's not one that we wrote and it talks about anger management. But the reality is if you're truly willing to feel the uncomfort 
comfortable response of your physiology and your heart and your emotions when conflict arises, nobody would stay in that uncomfortable place if they didn't care deeply about something. So if you can, we talk about revealing the fight in you and giving the person a new perspective on the lens in which they're viewing your conflict and saying, hey, this is why I'm so upset. This is why I'm so angry because you took a stand against an agency that is my life calling and that I truly feel strongly about being a part of. And it doesn't mean that I don't like you. I just, you disrespected my chance to have autonomy in my own opinion. And you're trying to control my behavior, period. That's why I'm angry. Not, did you vote you know, one color or another color? And I think we get stuck in what we fight about, not why we're fighting. And so I, I constantly try, even within my own relationships, interpersonally at home, with my, with my spouse, with my kiddos, with my coworkers, with my friends, I try and reveal the why and just say, here's why I'm so upset. Even the other day, I was in such an emotional, frustrating uh, conflict with my, with my husband, who I love very deeply. And it was because my toddler, who's three, and my youngest has been having these epic meltdown tantrums in a season that just continually take all of my patience and test it in every single way. And all of that, I had had kind of been patient and patient and patient and patient. And she just broke me the other day and he was my safe place to just kind of vomit all of the stress. And so I literally said to him, I'm not actually mad at you. I just am so overwhelmed with not being able to control a (laughs) three-year-old that I am taking it out on you. And I had to apologize for that. And it was really healthy instead of us getting into a fight about something that was not the core issue. And once we got to that point, actually something miraculous happened and he had great empathy and said, oh my gosh, me too. She's doing the same thing to me when when you're gone. And so we just kind of made a joke about it and said, man, let's hope this three major thing is a short season because she's got, <laughs> she's got the will of an adolescent and she, the body of a toddler. And so we just got to really come together instead of being divided. But had we never said, hey, this is why I'm angry. This is why I'm stressed. And we, we just would have duped it out on each other. And I, I know that the uh, ref, refuse from that would not have been productive. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things that we learned through our um, our collaboration with University of Denver and some of the researchers we work with is that one of the biggest predictors of relationship disillusion, whether it's a friendship or co- colleague or romance or pa- or family relationships, is the inability to work through conflict. And so uh, what they did, learning this research was to teach people the skill on the speaker listener technique so that we'll hear each other. Even if we are diametrically opposed on an issue, the commonality of being human is just hear my heart. Just just acknowledge that you're hearing me and you're hearing my feelings because feelings are feelings. When somebody says, oh, you shouldn't feel that way, that dehumanizes us, okay? We need to be able to share our feeling and to be heard. We don't have to agree. We just have to, I need to know that you heard me. And um, that that is the operationalized skill that we teach 
is how to hear. That's the first step in conflict resolution is hearing the heart. Then you can go into problem solving if, the pro if there's a problem to solve. But the first step is the hearing it and to and the acknowledging and the validating of that feeling. So conflict resolution is a huge skill. Can you imagine? And that's what we teach to young people with our work, with our with our curricula. And as, as we train the teachers all over the country, teach this bullying will go down, increased understanding, increased empathy, increased compassion, increased humanizing people so that they can, people can stop doing the brain thing and start doing the heart thing. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> I, I think that we generally live from the neck up and we're so defended that we can't even hear the other person. We want to be right, we want to be heard. I mean, I, this morning I had a meeting and two people just started going at each other about politics and no, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. And this other person who was there was like, okay, let's not talk about this. And so nobody wants to hear it. This person had to be right. This person had to be right. And the other person had to not hear it at all. And I mean, this was, it, it had nothing to do with the conversation we were having, it just ignited something in these two people. And if they could have had this conversation in, you know, this is what I'm passionate about and this is why, and the other person could have heard as opposed to this is right, you're wrong. And that was the nature of the conversation. You have to stop watching this news channel and you have, I can't believe you believe that. And so one of the things like on my dating profile, I have apolitical because I and people will ask me about it. And I say, because I don't want to have right or wrong conversations. I want to have conversations where both people can express how they feel. And often politics ends up in that place. So yeah, it's that's a hard one, especially in the last few years of our political climate. But if we learn to talk about our values instead of this is right and everybody else is wrong, we could have a much better world. I mean, and I think friendships. We need, some we need some media literacy too around sensationalized extremes and drama create money and create following. And therefore, if people realize that there was a lot more middle ground and respect, then I think we could get a lot further in our society. Speaking of politics, Sandy, they, there was a, uh, we, we belong to this organization called the National Association for Relationship and Marriage Education, and they had a speaker who was uh, specializes in couples that are politically different from each other. Now, you're living with this person. Can you imagine? And you're, you're politically. And he was actually coaching them to say, instead of somebody saying something and the partner disagreeing, the partner says, I understand what you're saying and I hear you. And not saying but, not, not, not trying to make them change. All they did, all this coach did was teach them how to hear each other's point of view, not problem solve, not try to get to, to, to the other person to think the way they think. That couple who were constantly in this age of, you know, politicalization and, and division came together in such a beautiful way. They started holding hands. They started look, uh, having eye contact. 
because they were hearing each other's hearts. And it could even happen in a, in a political conversation if you have the right tools. Yep. Yeah, I, I, that's a beautiful story. We have a couple who lives in our area here who are both pol politicians on the opposite, opposite sides. And they can't live together because of the districts which they are the constituents of, but they have a beautiful, beautiful marriage and they've made it work. So I know it's possible. It's, this topic comes up a lot in the dating world. And so um, let's just go into the dating world for the final question. And I know that people do feel like they're looking for differences often. And I'm wondering what final words of advice you have for people who want to go on their last first date, who would like to go first? <laughs> to honor time limits, I'll keep it really brief. And just okay. Differences are not necessarily what you have to worry about but honoring those differences and finding more compatibility than opposition is also important. You can be differently wired in your personality, but you need to have some sameness in how you feel about big issues and recreation and hobbies, because there's just, there's so many people in this world. Don't try and make life more challenging by picking someone who is incompatible with you on so many fronts. Uh, but they can have a different personality type. Yeah, yeah, and we do that personality type in our curriculum as we, and, and so we do the personality assessments and then we find out who, who you know, who sees the world this way, who operates in the world this way. It's like different, different operating systems. One's a Mac and one's a Apple, okay? Uh, one's a Mac and one's a PC. So it doesn't make them right or wrong. It just makes them different. And there's some compatibility issues for software, but so, the people, the kids say, well, well, who should I partner with? Should I partner with somebody who's exactly the same as I am in regards to the personality? No, the key word here is honor. The key word is knowing how somebody operates in the world. They might be more detailed than you are. They might be more, you know, a bossy than you are. They might be more directive than you are. You, you might be, you know, want to smell the roses and be slower. Just honor who they are. Just honor what they do. So um, that that's what we would say is compatibilities. Yes. Don't get somebody who's so vastly different than you, but if you can have sameness in the things that really matter, then honor each other's differences in that. Thank you so much, Lauren and Janine, for coming on the show today, for sharing these crucial skills for having successful relationships, no matter what you're doing in the world, whether you're dating, having children, or whatever it is. Thank you for doing the work you do. Thank you, Sandy. Thank you for having us. We're all in it together. Thank you yes. so much. <laughs> all right. And thanks everybody for listening today. If you love our show, please rate and review us. And um, as always, here's to your last first date. If you are ready to get unstuck, gain new tools, become more empowered, and finally find your last first date, I'd love to talk to you. Fill out an application to be considered for a complimentary half-hour love breakthrough session at lastfirstdate.com forward slash application. That's lastfirstdate.com forward slash application. I look forward to talking to you soon.